Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, you know these neighborhoods, Edgewood, East Atlanta, Kirkwood, and Cabbage Town. They've all transformed throughout the years due to economic development. Now, depending on who you ask, some will say it's been great. Others say they have some challenges still. As we continue speaking with Atlanta City Council members about their respective districts, today it's Councilmember Liliana Bakhtiari, and we'll talk equity within District 5. Also, drowning. It's a leading cause of death for children. But understand this, 64% of children who identify as black or African-American cannot swim. So we're about efforts through the YMCA to offer swimming lessons as well as some general safety measures. All those conversations coming up, but first this. Georgia is set to play a prominent role in the public hearings this month on the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. As you know, a congressional committee has been investigating the attack for over a year now and is ready to present their findings in prime time, which started last night. WABC Sam Greenglass has more. Over the next month, the bipartisan committee will lay out the case that former President Trump and his allies knew he lost the 2020 election and how they made plans to block the peaceful transfer of power leading up to the storming of the Capitol. Among the first to testify live on Thursday was Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards. She's originally from Atlanta and graduated from UGA. I'm a proud American and I will gladly sacrifice everything to make sure that the America my grandfather defended is here for many years to come. Edwards defended the Capitol perimeter on January 6th. The rioters pushed her to the concrete. She hit her head and for a time lost consciousness before she resumed her position. I I, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground. They were throwing up. They were, you know, they had I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. It was carnage. It was chaos. Later hearings will focus on Trump's specific attempts to overturn the 2020 election. That included a plan to install a loyalist as attorney general who would instruct officials in five states, including in Georgia, to withdraw their electoral votes for Joe Biden. Another focus will be the call Trump made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Trump asked Raffensperger to, quote, find 11,780 votes for him. Raffensperger is expected to testify before the committee soon. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And speaking of Congress, Georgia Congressman Hank Johnson is joining other House Democrats in putting pressure on their Senate counterparts to do away with the filibuster. The heightened calls come after the House passed a wide-ranging gun control bill this week. Legislation GOP senators would filibuster to block it. And Johnson says that situation is frustrating. Well, there's no excuse for not doing all that you can to move the ball up the court. And once again, we've sent product to the Senate only to watch it as it languishes and ultimately dies. Johnson says Democrats will continue to work toward a compromise in the Senate because any movement on gun control is better than none. And you can hear more of this interview on our website, WABE.org. The Cobb County School District will implement a new safety system in response to the recent school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. At a meeting yesterday, Cobb Superintendent Chris Ragsdale said the district will hold cold red drills in schools to ensure students and teachers are prepared. We understand the stress and anxiety students experience contemplating a tragic event, but the drills will help everyone improve their implementation. The old adage of practice makes perfect is incorrect. Perfect practice makes perfect. 
Ragsdale said the new system will let teachers call for help with the push of a button on their ID badges. He said the district will hire more school psychologists and may add to its police force. But he went on to say it doesn't support he doesn't support arming teachers. Let's go out to East Point because they're turning an old public housing building back into affordable units. Local leaders say they hope it will help meet a growing need on the south side of Atlanta, as we hear from Stephanie Stokes. The old high-rise stands only a few blocks from East Point's downtown. It's nine stories tall, and a construction crew has already stripped the building to the frame. Are they preserving the structure? Yes, they are. Michael Spann is the director of the East Point Housing Authority. We're looking up at the skeleton building as construction workers move with drills in and out of the gutted apartments. They used to be full of residents. This was a 100-unit senior and disabled person complex uh, that was owned by the uh, East Point Housing Authority. It was called Nelms House. It opened in 1974. Then, over time, it developed serious issues like mold. In 2004, it closed. The building sat vacant for nearly two decades, until this latest attempt to revive it, a partnership between the Housing Authority and a developer called the Vicino Group. Why was this finally able to happen after 18 years? I, I think it's the demand, the demand for affordable housing. Span says East Point is the next community south of Atlanta. So as Atlanta struggles with rising housing prices, that spills over into East Point. He says several affordable developments opened up in recent years. They all had waiting lists immediately. I don't want East Point to become one more community that your your average person can't afford. The Old Nelms House is set to reopen next year with a new name, Aya Tower. It's expected to have 88 one- and two-bedroom units. Price for people who make around thirty to forty thousand dollars a year. Stephanie Stokes, WABE News. And finally, it could be a while before some of y'all in the area can take that first dip in the swimming pool this summer. Don't get mad at me. Why? Well, as Amelia Moffitt reports, Fulton County is working to reduce a backlog of pool inspections. Publicly used swimming pools, even if they're located at privately owned apartment complexes or condo communities, require a permit and at least one yearly inspection from the Fulton County Board of Health. There are an estimated 1,800 such pools in the county, and many that were closed during the pandemic are hoping to reopen this summer. But they're facing delays in getting permits. Fulton County blames the large number of requests as well as internal staffing challenges. The county says it's working as quickly as possible to complete the inspections and is attempting to keep property owners updated on their progress. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. And that means do not go in a pool that is not on your property. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. When this program started way back in 2015, seems like it was 1995, but it was 2015, we ventured out to many neighborhoods and we asked folks, tell us what you like about your neighborhood, tell us what you don't like, tell us about where you live. Here's what someone said about Kirkwood. I'm Kerry Copeland. I'm a native Atlantan. I actually live in the community as well. My favorite thing about Kirkwood is how we've been able to merge things together as far as the gentrification factor, which I think is a huge factor for uh, all parties concerned, especially those of us who are well invested, have seen the changes over the years and how it's transformed itself into what it is at the moment. I think if anything, continue to forward progress and just not regress.
And this summer, we'll be back out in your area asking the same questions. Now, in Atlanta, we know there are what, about 234 neighborhoods represented on city council via 12 districts and three citywide posts. So what we've been doing, we said, hey, let's call up each city council person and ask them what the top priorities are for their district and hopefully get a little bit of insight. Now, joining me now is District 5 Councilmember Liliana Bakhtiari, representing Edgewood, Kirkwood, Cabbage Town, East Atlanta, among others. Don't email me saying I didn't shout out your neighborhood. It's a lot of y'all, but she can say that. Welcome, Councilmember. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate you giving me the time. Uh, and yeah, they're sorry. They won't email you. They'll email me. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I'm, you're the first elected official that says, yes, email me too. Um, let's begin here. This is your first year on Atlanta City Council. What's it been like thus far? Um, well, one, I actually love the work. What's been surprising to me, I mean, everyone keeps asking, is it what you expected? And quite yeah. frankly, yes, because I think. <laughs> What's that mean? Like, <laughs> like, I've been doing mutual aid work for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the issues that, you know, that have come before me are not nothing that I didn't hear on the campaign trail or in the on in these neighborhoods the last, you know, five, 10 years. And so a lot of it I was assisting with through nonprofit organizations and organizers on the ground. The difference now is I feel like I finally have the resources and the team to actually make things happen in real time. You know, mutual aid, you're exhausting yourself to help two, three mm-hmm. people at a time. This is a huge honor because we have the ability to draft legislation ordinances that can affect thousands of lives at a time. So it, I honestly love the work. Is it a lot? Is it like drinking from a fire hose? Yeah, <laughs> but I frankly love it. In terms of process as it relates to legislating, what's been eye opening for you? Things move too slow sometimes or just too much of a process to get something accomplished? Uh, it's when you make one accomplishment and then you realize you have 20 more things to do that each it's like leveling up. It gets harder and harder each time. Um, I think one thing that people don't know is that we have an incredible policy team here, an amazing support staff, but also, you know, the difficulty of this is it's hard to not because it, we all are human beings still with limited bandwidth. It's hard not to just, to not just listen to the loudest voices in the room or the folks that have direct access to us here at city hall. This is about straddling worlds and it's about putting yourself in the shoes of everybody and every stakeholder in a community, not just the people you agree with the most. You have to look at every perspective. So how do you handle that? You just said, look, you have to straddle. How do you balance that? Because you have folks that say, council member, we voted for you. We believed in you. Then you get there. There is process. You realize that that was going to happen. Then you've got some other stakeholders who have some influence. And then you got other folks over here. How do you balance all of that? Well, um, the way I've taken it now for now is like a lot of the times there's a contentious issue that I get tagged in a bunch or I get emailed a lot. I my one of my first steps is to offer to take that conversation from being from take it away from being online to being in person so that we bring that humanity back into the conversation because folks will say a lot of things uh, behind a keyboard that they will not say in person. And it also humanizes people at the table. So it changes the conversation immensely. I've done uh, probably 10 town halls at this point around different contentious topics um, in, this, in the five and a half months that I've been here. And in addition, sometimes you have to push back. We've had a lot of people who oftentimes will say de- dehumanizing things they don't realize are dehumanizing about unsheltered populations, mm-hmm. or they'll say things that they don't realize that are problematic about density. Or just the other day, someone said, I'm a homeowner and they're a renter. You should listen to me. We have to push back on those things. This isn't always about doing the most popular thing. It's not always about appeasing that person and going the path of least resistance. It's also about checking folks when they are saying problematic or coded things and ensuring that we're oftentimes thinking about the people who aren't in the room and don't have the privilege of being at the table for that conversation. Someone said to you, you should listen to them because they are a homeowner and not a renter. Wow. Yeah, they did. And I said, I will not entertain that statement ever again. Those contentious topics. Let's talk about a few. What's that? What was one that you feel Oh, is that what we're here to talk about? Contentious topics. Well, yeah, come no. on. Now see, now see, this what come on closer look. We gotta unreal, yeah. we gotta unravel unravel yeah. it and you know, take a deeper yeah, dive. You ain't gotta mention any names unless you want to. <laughs> Which topic you wanna dig into first? Well you tell me what's that what was one of those contentious topics where you had to what you just talked about in terms of, right. you know, straddling and put I'm gonna say putting folks in their place, but letting everybody know that yeah. you're about everyone not just one particular demographic you know a lot of times the the contentious pieces that come up some of them around parking ordinances people want to see 
they want there to be more parking or they're worried about um, about there being more street parking. If like people are, if we're doing away with parking minimums and instead of putting in place parking maximums, or if we're talking about things like density, because right now Atlanta's building at probably around a 20,000 unit deficit. And we're talking about a million, um, like a, a million person growth in the next 20 years. And that's without even factoring in the effects of climate change in other cities mm-hmm. becoming unlivable. Atlanta is actually probably um, already on the path to becoming one of the greatest climate refugee cities on the east on the eastern coast. And so mm-hmm. the hard conversation becomes a lot of them are around how do we do clustered developments? How do we ensure that we're building across the board, not just one or two neighborhoods, not just those hot topic neighborhoods, but how do we make sure we're building mixed income across the board while also investing in resiliency and green space? You know, and that's where rubber meets pavement. Our researchers discovered that your district has one of the highest home ownership rates of any district. Now, this is per data provided by the city from 2021. It's almost a 50-50 split with renters. But what does it say about housing needs in your district or even affordability just in overall? So the district, I mean, when I first came into District 5, I was renting on Pearl Street for maybe like, you know, $350 for a room. Uh, that's not, you know, seaboard was probably, you could probably get a, a one bedroom and a bath for 600, like a, an apartment for $600. Hmm. Obviously that is not the case anymore. We have, I, ha- I had a house three, I got my house for $150,000 10 years ago and the house three doors down went for eight seventy eight twenty five just, just the other month. So of course we have this massive market explosion. And in a lot of ways, I love my district. We have, a, we have the youngest district one, arguably one of the most diverse mm-hmm. history rich but the, what we have to do is I honestly think that District 5 could be the model district for every other district to follow because we have the ingredients, the advocacy, the people here that want to make things happen. But again, the thing that I have to focus on is how do I protect the renters that are here? How do I protect those legacy homeowners? Because we have predatory buyers coming in every day. If you own a house, you're probably getting contacted 15, mm-hmm. 20 times a week, if not more. And especially if you're senior, probably triple that offering to buy your house cash uh, up front. We have developers buying up entire blocks of houses and trying to convert them. I have a developer right now who's talking about tearing down Seaboard, which is one of our, which is a dense apartment yeah. complex next to a margin stop to build luxury homes. So these are the things that we have to push back against and find out how do we navigate state preemptions and ensure that we're building affordable, dense housing and taking advantage of things like the land trust and other renters programs. That is something that Mayor Andre Dickens has said that the city has a lot of land. He would like to see that as being part of the solution as well. Uh, mm-hmm. In Mayor Bottoms' administration, there was this $1 billion housing plan. It doesn't sound exactly like Mayor Dickens is going to stick with that, but we do know there needs to be an additional, it could be more than 20000 And when folks right. say units, I'm glad you're on the program. I want to talk about that because I think when folks hear, oh, we want to bring in twenty to 25000 additional units, mm-hmm. and, and folks are like, okay, you mean like just one bedroom? When you think of units, <laughs> what are you thinking of? Because uh, for a family of four, okay. one unit, it ain't going to work. No. And so we talk, we, we can't just talk about, this is the thing where, where we all tend to get lost. We tend to think about things in extreme. It has to be one or the other, not all. And it has to be all. You have to talk about multifamily housing. You have to talk about apartments. You have to talk about single family homes. We have to talk about everything because we don't just need to put people in an apartment. People want to have, there needs to be different pathways to home ownership because we need to be building equity. But when I say units, I mean a diversity of housing options. Mm-hmm. But right now, 62, 63% of our city is zoned single family. And what a lot of people don't know is that single family before segregation ended was zoned white and apartments were zoned black. And so, again, it's about also taking into mind that those roots, as we're talking about building density and diverse density across the board, because you can't just do one. You have to have a diversity of approach and tactic because what works for one neighborhood Mm -hmm. isn't going to work for another, just not even districts. I'm talking about what works for Edgewood is not going to work for Eastlake, what works for Eastlake is not going to work for Cabbage Town. It's different across the board in our own districts, let alone across the city. So we have to go in and have that nuanced approach to how we're going to get things done. And when you talk about this nuanced approach, because there was a nuanced approach for East Lake, some, mm-hmm. you know, we, and we know all the history of that. I've done so many pro- programs on that. But now we have folks saying, well, due to the housing prices that are high, the mission of East Lake is not now, the mission has changed because the people that it was intended to help 
they can't either stay there or they're getting priced out or they've already moved. So while that was a nuanced approach, what yeah. has to do what has to be different than if someone says, well, let's look at that as the model because we still hear that East Lake is the model to use moving forward. Well, a mixed income, I think, very much is the model to use, right? A third, mm-hmm. a third, a third. It's a great idea. But here's the thing. You can't just solely depend on that. we got to look at programs like access to legal counsel for people facing evictions, which we have the power to pilot through plenty of nonprofits. We have to look at potentially allowing seniors to sell their land into a, into a program like the Atlanta Trust, like the Trust Fund, the Atlanta Land Bank, and being able to preserve their land, but also be able to own their home and continue to pass down that housing to their kids and so on generationally. So they still own their property, they still own their house, but the land is kept affordable. Mm -hmm. And you also have to take a look at maybe doing, we have to take a look at doing low barrier to no barrier shelters around the city. Cause right now you got a lot of people on the streets that have nowhere to go and are being Mm -hmm. kept in poverty. So again, the East Lake model is one to follow, but you can't solely just depend on that model. You have to plan for everything else that's happening because you have to take into fact that you have companies like Zillow and Redfin coming in and curating entire neighborhoods. You have to take a look at the fact you got predatory buyers around the clock coming after folks, that we have companies doing mass evictions, and we have to not with the support of the state always be able to navigate that from a city lens and get really innovative it's not going to be as easy as i can create this law it's going to be how can i partner with all the different organizations that are here in the city doing the work on the ground what we have the power to do is give them funding and allow them to continue and to pilot their mission statements are there neighborhoods in your district that you are and i know that you don't prioritize a neighborhood over another it doesn't sound like you do but are there neighborhoods that you are concerned about in terms of legacy residents and a fair share of affordable housing. Absolutely. You know, um, in Cabochon and Reynoldstown, we don't have many legacy residents left. Very few. Hmm. Um, There's still a few in Reynoldstown that I am doing everything that we've had a situation where this mat, these predatory buyers are really coming after homeowners or like senior renters and homeowners in, in, in Reynoldstown. Um, East Atlanta, we still have a we ha- still have a, a diversity there, and I'm doing everything I can to um, create lists of who those predatory buyers are, so that we can start warning. We're actually we actually created a uh, field plan of every senior that lives in District Five, and we're starting a door knocking program um, next month, making sure that we're going to senior stores and ensuring that they like that they have the tools necessary, so they know their property values, they understand. They understand the power of a of needing to create a will so that they don't get their kids don't get caught in probate court so that they understand what their actual property value is how to stay away from reverse mm-hmm. mortgages etc. But East Atlanta East Lake are two neighborhoods I'm very concerned about because we've and still Kirkwood but we've mm-hmm. lost a lot of our seniors mm-hmm. and we, we we are no longer a minority majority district anymore and so and we and we also have probably the smallest population of seniors in the like one of the smallest populations of seniors in district 5 left and legacy mm-hmm. homeowners so we the hope is not just thinking about district 5 but how do we put together models in place so this we keep this from happening in other districts that haven't been hit as hard yet i had a listener tell me that one population that does seem to be overlooked when you talk about not just affordability in terms of affordable housing but you know for the aging population seniors they want nice Mm-hmm. options as well. It doesn't mean it have to necessarily be affordable, but no one, th- as the person told me, no one thinks about our our age. And she said, Rose, I'm, I'm now in my 60s, but where are the options for us? Right. And I got that a lot when I was door knocking. We knocked on over 30,000 doors a cycle. And I believe that you don't just door knock during election years, you should be door knocking year round. So these are conversations I'm where they're like, you know, what about us? Where, where can I retire? Because one, having actual like age in place towers we don't have a large amount of those and we have to start thinking we have to think about that and not a lot of areas are zoned for that type of density um and then of course ensuring that seniors can age in place in their own homes Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of times code enforcement by buyers is weaponized against those seniors so we have in district five an amazing program that was started by residents in eastlake called neighbor in need which allows us to donate and allows them to go in and fix and make repairs to those senior homes so they don't get code enforcement called on them and so that we can keep their house up to code and safe and so it's about expanding and building on programs like that That, that's the type of creativity i'm talking about the voice you hear is atlanta district 5 council member liliana bakhtiari represents edgewood kirkwood cabbage town east atlanta and some other neighborhoods as we check in with all the city council members let's talk about the beltline for a moment because i know there is a section of that that east side beltline crossing bill kennedy way i think over i-20 and you that's been the scene of (laughs) 
Let me tell you something. First of all, y'all slow down driving, number one. Um, that's just Rose Scott's daily <laughs> reminder to slow down. That's been a scene yep. of several car crashes. Uh, drivers, that's I guess, one this morning. Yeah, exiting the interstate, mm-hmm. but damaging the Beltline and also homes right next door. You toured this site earlier with the mayor. What can y'all do about this? Yeah, I actually toured it again last week with our outgoing um, ATL DOT commissioners and members of his team uh, just a couple days ago. So we've gotten GDOT to, because that ramp is owned, a lot of people don't know that the ramp obviously is owned by GDOT and the exit portion right in front of those houses mm-hmm. where they people keep getting, that's owned by GDOT too. So there's, we have to work with them on that. And GDOT moves a lot slower than we would like them to. Um, and we And so right now we've gotten them to agree to safety measures on the ramp things like rumble strips, more light signage, lights, things like that to slow people down. Because right now it's a straight shot on that highway ramp and Mm -hmm. people are flying off of it and not slowing down before they get to that turn. There are no bends. So it's like, it's, it's just like a racetrack. Mm -hmm. So we're working with them that those changes would be implemented. Um, They made that commitment about two months ago. So that would probably be another four to six months when those changes will finally, finally be implemented on that ramp. But in the meantime, what we, what ATL DOT, myself and the Beltline are working on Mm-hmm. is signage for bikers and pedestrians on the belt line stopping before lights which seems like a basic one mm-hmm. there are some light repairs because lights aren't timed well but we're also talking about um we should have speed tables on bill kennedy mm-hmm. uh by the end of august we are trying to make it as difficult for people to speed on that road as possible so we're looking into that we're looking into additional lighting we're looking into more cameras um we are trying to look at a no truck through zone, for example. So we are working with GIS, right? Our GIS team right now to speak with Google to make it so that you can't drive through, trucks don't drive through that area and that we have signage and make it illegal for them to do so. So I am trying to explore every option possible to do traffic calming and to also prevent larger trucks from using the neighborhood as cut throughs. And looking at that, those two massive developments on either side, you have Madison Yards and then you have, and then you have the Kroger shopping center. Mm-hmm that quite frankly are poorly designed. You have this, you have this rural design in an urban environment that aren't, isn't taking into, that isn't taking in, that never took into to consideration that type of traffic and deliveries. Mm-hmm. So that Chick-fil-A and that backup it causes, you know, we had the developers there promise that, that was going to be an exit only and people would be part coming in through, uh, coming in through the Glenwood entrance. That's not happening. So we're going to make that happen. Okay. And we're, we're going, ATL, DOT, and I are going to make that an exit only and force the rerouting of traffic and force those people to come to the table and be responsible for the plans that they've created. Because right now, those those plans are endangering lives. Let's be really clear. You're not you're not opposed to the Chick-fil-A wonderful milkshakes <laughs> and lemonade. You just want a better. Just better. I was born and raised in the I can't be a <laughs> Let's talk about, though, infrastructure needs, because now we know that the voters approved that T-SPLAS uh, once again. So what? how much is coming for your district, and when exactly can we can folks start seeing some, some things happening? Right. So we have, we you know, we still have the commitment to, uh, we have the commitment to, of, of ATL-DOT being able to put in um, resurfacing of certain roads. We have commitments for traffic for for speed tables we have commitments for additional lighting um we have the ten thousand the ten thousand light of the night program that we're doing with georgia power mm-hmm. um we have uh additional cameras and lprs that will be coming into the district and we're actually working on um things i'm individually working on i'm going to be using those funds for we're working with with uh georgia tech right now to do a priority mapping list of all sidewalks non-existing and, and, and existing sidewalks in the district um, and creating a capital campaign around that. We're actually going to be working on something called Sidewalk Palooza in the fall, getting people out and kind of doing a participatory budgeting of where they want to see that money going and where they want to see that that multimodal connectivity and actually looping in residents into the process of determining how that money is spent in their district. Um, and so that's something I'm really excited about. But we are going to have funds that also come towards green space and also building connectivity between all parks and green spaces in District 5. And, and I'm not making this up. I have a question. Rose, ask about bike lanes. Here we go. Now, yeah. do you have enough? <laughs> and again, depending on when you ask, you mm-hmm. you have enough bike lanes in your district? You feel like no. you need some? Okay, that was easy. I don't have enough bike lanes anywhere in the city. And a bike lane is not when you spray paint the symbol of a bike down the middle of a busy road. No, we do not have enough bike lanes. Um, we have high pedestrian and bicycling fatalities. We need to talk about vision zero and the, mm-hmm. the, the you know, multimodal connectivity in that last mile. Um, we have to, 
we need to not we need to be putting in protected bike lanes. That needs to be factored into every street design from here on out. But is it possible? You said now from every street design from here on out. But I asked this question the other day to your fellow council member, Jason. But given the Atlanta's current infrastructure, is that possible? Yeah, so we do have a billion dollar backlog and in, in, in things like sidewalks. We have we have multi we have huge backlogs infrastructurally. So yeah, there there is a concern that we can't put them on every road. But what we can do is do things like invest. Like in my district, we're doing the trolley line trail. We're actually going to be breaking ground on that this summer, which will connect Kirkwood and Edgewood to the Bell Line. And we're talking about doing a pathway through Amani Place. So we need to maybe we can't put Bell Line we can't put bike lanes everywhere. But what we can do is create bicycle paths that are safe and protected that connect all of our neighborhoods. And then if we are going to put in a bike lane or promise one, we mm-hmm. have to make sure that it's raised or protected or proper barriers are put in place, not just, like I said, spray paint a symbol down the middle of the road. Then we can, if we can't do bike lanes and we can create protected paths that connect bicyclists to every part of the city. How much influence can you all have with MARTA for those neighborhoods that are asking just for bus shelters? And, you know, here in Atlanta, one day, one minute, it's sunny, and then two minutes later, rain shower. And, and you and I both know in some communities, you know, what one, they don't have sidewalks, and, and let alone bus shelters. Can you all work together on that for those communities? Oh, absolutely. Right now, I'm looking at I'm looking at introducing um, legislation, and hopefully by next full council, but within the next month or so, that would actually require any new commercial development or multifamily development going along a, along a bus route to be to have to be to be required to build a bus shelter. Mm-hmm. So one, requiring new developments actually that are on bus routes to build those shelters, and then taking a look at where we are missing shelters. And this is something I actually talked about Mar- to Marta with, like, if you can't, because aff- we are, we, there's also the, how the uh, supply trade shortage. So we mm-hmm. have shortage of supplies. So we, we're also short, like, we're running out of everything right now from trash receptacles to materials needed for these things. Um, so then I asked Marta, can we get creative and look at where we have a lack of shelters and do initiatives with the neighborhood to build them ourselves if you give us the specs? And that was something they were open to. They were but open to that. They were that was something that a conversation I had with them that they said they said that they were open to. Yes. But there needs to be just like we have these deficit maps around housing that I'm talking about, we have mm-hmm. to look at the shelters where they aren't prioritized. And then rather than looking out for our own districts looking at the districts that need the most help and making sure resources get allocated there. So we can't just be thinking about ourselves because lives don't end at district lines. Mm. I want to shift for a moment before I let you go, because you introduced legislation this week on how APD should or could handle abortion-related crimes in the event that Roe versus Wade is overturned. First of all, I want folks to understand what does this resolution actually mention or or concern you? And what was concerned with the resolution and why you wanted to to put it forth? So first, I, I want to say that I've worked and I've worked all over the world and cri- I've done crisis relief for, for years and years now. And I can honestly say that I've never been anywhere in the world where the health of a community, an economy, a society, that where the health of, that, of, that, of those entities are not directly correlated to the treatment of women and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I expand that also to trans and non-binary people as well. But right now, we are in a political climate in which we may, we saw the Supreme Court leak. We may have be facing Roe v. Wade being overturned. Georgia is one of those states that has something on the books that mm-hmm. could lead to an abortion ban. We have we, we have the abortion ban. Uh, I personally think misleadingly named the heartbeat bill, which is not accurate because it you know it, it detects when a fetal uh, a fetal heartbeat can start as early six weeks and ban abortions at that early. And it was previously ruled ruled unconstitutional, but obviously if it's overturned, that will not be the case. So this resolution would designate alleged abortion crimes as the lowest priority for APD. Mm-hmm. It would limit the sharing of abortion crimes information with other agencies. And I want to say that I'm using the word crime right now because that's what it would be labeled under mm-hmm. the law if this was overturned, not because I believe it's a crime. It limits the use of city funds for pursuit and documentation of abortion crimes. And I also want to stress that police departments already prioritize certain programs and issues for themselves. And we are just stating where Atlanta would stand. But you, but it's a state law. So how right. optimistic do you think that you're going to face some, some challenges here? And even from, you know, if, let's say all this happens, mm-hmm. does this this can't, in, in a sense, be binding over a state law? Yeah. No. We we are preempted by the state on certain things. But what the city has the power to do is state where they stand. State that we will do everything in our power to protect women, trans folk, non-binary people who are seeking to have bodily autonomy. 
and that are seeking that we can't just take away their family. This is us saying you can't take away family education. You can't take away health care. You can't make insurance unaffordable, childcare nearly impossible, and then also take away a person's right to choose whether or not they're ready to start a family. We are setting that people, this is not pro-life, this is pro-force birth, and the city needs to, even though we can't make the laws that, because we're preempted by the state, we sure as heck can make sure that we are doing everything in our power to signal that we are going to do everything we can to not prioritize these alleged crimes as our first, as our top priority. And, then, and that we'll do everything I can to protect these individuals. And then finally, as it relates then to law, you all are doing a national search for a police chief. What are those characteristics you want to see in Atlanta's next chief? Um, what I want to see is somebody who's open to a diversity of tactic. When we talk about when we talk about policing, we ha- we we've seen we've seen how successful co-responder programs are in other cities and other states. We need to have someone who's willing to be open to that. Somebody who's actually going to work with PAD to actually, which is for those who don't know, the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Program, to ensure that we're properly diverting low-lying offenses. Um, who's going to work with 311 to take some of those low-lying offenses off of 911's plates and divert it to the 311 responders, who are now all HMIS certified, meaning that callers for 311 can place people who are unsheltered or experiencing mental illness with support. We need to, I want a police chief who is going to want to work with everybody at the table, communities over cages, folks who are, who want to divert offenses, but also obviously support their staff, their officers, but look at a diversity of tactic when it comes to policing and a more humane and compassionate approach and look at people as more than just statistics on a page and actually do things like incorporate sobering tanks and other things and not just be all about ticketing and booking booking folks. Because once that happens, we know we don't have strong expungement laws and that is a mark on somebody forever that that will affect their lives until the day they die. Liliana Bakhtiari represents District 5 on the Atlanta City Council. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. You survived your first interview on Closer Look. How do you feel? I loved it. So we should just do this all the time, Rose. Yeah, let's do it. Take care. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. From WAB in Atlanta, you're listening to Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Summer, it's basically here. Let's go ahead and just celebrate. But you know what? The allure of swimming is always present. But there's something we should be serious about. According to the CDC, here in the U.S., more children, ages from 1 to 4, die from drowning than any other cause of death except birth defects. For children ages 1 to 14, drowning is the second leading cause of unintentional injury death after motor vehicle crashes. And for and swimming pools, black children ages 10 to 14 years drown at rates 7.6 times higher than their white counterparts. And black children and youth are more likely to drown in public pools and white children and youth are more likely to drown in residential pools. Well, the YMCA of Metro Atlanta has programs with a focus on not just swimming, but also just general safety measures. And joining me now is Brianna Scott Greenberg, YMCA of Metro Atlanta Aquatics Director, and Beckley Shipley, YMCA of Metro Atlanta Group Vice President. Thank you both for taking the time. Hi, Rose. Brianna, let me begin with you. What age did you learn to swim? I learned to swim very old. I was 14 years old. Well, Becky, what about you? Gosh, I learned to swim probably when I was about six. Wow. Wow. So those statistics that I just mentioned coming into the this segment, Brianna, they're not lost on you. No, ma'am. Um, this entire interview is an honor because um, I've experienced those statistics. Look at me. It's okay. Statistics firsthand. Um, in 2016, my six-year-old niece had drowned. And that is when we, my family realized, um, where I realized the disconnect between the African-American community and swim lessons. Oh, Brianna, I'm so sorry. Um, our condolences. It's fine. It is something I've learned to heal from, and the YMCA has helped um, me provide, my, you know, find my purpose and provide a quality um, to provide a, a, something that I was not myself able to get until I was 14 years old. Becky, we've been hearing this disparity in drowning deaths. Let's be clear. This is not new. And that percentage as relates to black kids and other races. But the gap is not closing. Is this due to economics and just access to programs or a little bit of both here? 
Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's access. I think that there's some misnomers around cost. Uh, there's also kind of this inherited fear of, of just stay away from the water, otherwise you'll drown. And and we know kids are naturally curious. And so that being your prevention uh, for drowning as a, as a parent doesn't necessarily work. And so it is important to kind of build awareness, but also comfort in the water. And, and Brianna can probably speak to how often we have kids who come swimming, who, who cry and scream and who are afraid to be in the water just because acclimation didn't really happen um, with them very young. Brianna, so what do you, take me through some of the, that process. I mean, it, it's not, some, for some kids, they want to jump right in. I know I was a camp counselor. Some kids want to jump right in. Others are like, lady, I'm not getting near that pool. You are not going to make me. What's your process of getting them used to just even getting in the water first? Um, my, my personal process is to treat everyone as though they cannot swim. So that way I'm creating boundaries in teaching those children the fear that, you know, to respect the water, that um, the water is fun, but it is also a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the YMCA has beautiful, beautiful um, lesson plans that we're able to use to teach children. So we're able to teach them th- those those overzealous children mm-hmm. how to um, properly enter and exit the water, things like, you know, how to wait their turn, how to... Like I said before, just respect and fear the water. Is it easier with younger kids, Brianna, than some of the older kids? Absolutely. It's almost like it's easier to teach a younger child to read rather than an older child. Mm-hmm. So get them while their brains are molding and we're able to teach them how to swim a lot faster than we would teach a 50-year-old. Mm-hmm. Becky, we mentioned we talked about the economics of this. And, you know, for some households, even just trying to afford a membership at the Y. And I know you all have sliding scale programs and, and other, there are other organizations that have programs, but uh, how are you all reaching out to those communities that you so desperately want to take advantage? Uh, and we'll get to the programs in a, in a moment that you all have. Yeah. So it's, it is truly an, an intentional effort. Um, I, in order to kind of break that generational gap, we have to be intentional and go to communities um, where maybe they there's not a YMCA or there's not a parks and rec pool like where they would have had access. And so if one, it's intentional. One, it's also just making everyone aware that learning to swim is a life skill, that it's not a luxury. It's a necessity because you know the facts do show that the, those the kids, 88 um, percent of the kids who have learned to swim, it, it does increase their chances to be safe around the water. So it is preventable. Um, and so we see that the facts from the CDC um, that learning how to swim does give you an 88% better chance um, to protect yourself in the water um, than those who never had those skills. Uh, and so um, one, it's intentional. Two, it's through partnerships. Um, we can't do this alone. Uh, we you know, have limited resources. And so we partner with organizations like Children's, who has kind of a like mission to keep kids safe. Mm-hmm. Um, we partner with uh, Medicaid providers. You know, they have kind of a network of, of, um, of customers um, who would kind of meet the demographics, um, typically, that would not have equal access to swimming lessons. And so partnering with them to make sure that they, through vouchers and through, you know, ways that they can get free and reduced swimming lessons through the YMCA, not just here in Metro Atlanta, but across the state of Georgia. Brianna, for families who were maybe no one uh, can swim, is it a good idea for the entire family maybe to take lessons together? Absolutely. It is always like I said with reading, it's always a good idea for families to do things together. When um, younger children see mommy or daddy getting in the water, it encourages them and it it uplifts them. Like, oh, if mommy can do it, I can do it too. And a lot of times um, with parents, if they see their their four-year-old can swim, it it pushes them differently Mm -hmm. to want to, oh, if my four-year-old can do it, I can do it too. So it's absolutely, um, I recommend if if the family cannot swim, let's all hop in, let's all learn to swim together. Brad, I have a listener says that she has a uh, two-year-old and wants to know if that's too young to start swimming lessons. Now, this is your ex- your expertise, so it's and it's going to be different for every child. We want listen, folks. Don't take your two-year-old if they're not ready. So, but in general, is that too young, or what do you think? Absolutely not. So the YMCA starts at about six months. We do parent and tot, and then we offer um, we offer swim lessons for two-year-olds. We have those lessons. Uh, with a two-year-old, will be a parent and tot lesson. With the mom, mom or dad will get in the water. Even grandma can get in the water with the baby, and we teach them all how to have this baby safe in the water. 
Wow. And you, you have swimming lessons for old public radio hosts who love the water, just are not a very strong swimmer. I'm just asking for a friend. Absolutely. Come on over, girl. <laughs> you want me to come on? Now, let's have a real conversation for a moment, okay. Brianna and, and Becky, bear with us. Let's have a real conversation because for some folks, the first thing they say is, I don't want my hair to get wet. I don't want that chlorine. That's a real thing for some folks. I'm not making fun of that. So I want folk listeners to understand this. That's a real thing in our community. How do you have that conversation with folks? Um, my, my biggest thing is our concern is safety. Mm-hmm. You know, we want you to learn to swim your hair. You can do it when you get out that, that, um, that, uh, the ability to learn to swim, you can't just learn, you know, that's something you want to, you want to jump on, you want to grab right away. Mm-hmm. I always tell them uh, our pools are balanced. I am a CPO, so I and and most aquatics directors are. We balance our pools. We make sure our chemicals will not mess up your hair. They will not mess up your skin, um, or your clothes. So come on in. Like don't don't let the water stop you. You know, get your hair wet. That's what swimming get is about. Get on in there. And if you're trying to make it look, yeah. If you got, I have locks. And listen, it's a real conversation. Some folks are like, I can't believe Rose brought that up. This is a real conversation. Don't email me about stuff that you don't know what you're talking about. This is a real conversation. So I'm glad that you said that. Becky, so let's let's let our listeners know what what resources do you all have if someone wants to get their kid in a swimming program in terms of, you know, the cost? And do you all have programs? Do they have to be a member of the Y? Yeah, so first of all, you know, we don't want money to be a barrier. So we do offer a sliding fee scale, as you mentioned. And um, so no one will be turned away for the inability to pay. Also be on the lookout for a program called Safety Around Water in your community. We offer this free of charge. And Safety Around Water isn't necessarily swimming lessons, but it does teach kids how to be safe around the water should they accidentally fall into the water, which happens a lot. They get pushed into the pool. Uh, They accidentally fall into the pool. They accidentally fall off of dock Mm -hmm. in the lake. And so safety around water really is three simple concepts. One is, um, you know, jump, push, turn, and grab, which Mm -hmm. is basically jump off the side of the pool, push off the bottom, and then reach for the side. So teaching kids that. The other is throw, don't go. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes we hear in Georgia, multiple victims happen in a drowning incident. And so teaching kids, you know, or a parent, throw, throw a stick throw a noodle, throw something. If it's, if it's in a pool, there will be like a, a life preserver or a mm-hmm. rescue ring, throw something, don't jump in after and trying to, to save um, a, a struggling victim. And then three is um, this idea of swim, float, swim. So just over the weekend, we had a swimmer trying to cross the Chattahoochee and they don't, they don't realize the strength it takes, you know, to swim in moving water. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, swim, float, swim, uh, gives you some rest to float on your back for a second and then turn back over and try to start swimming again. And so those are just three kind of simple concepts that we teach in safety around water, but that's a mobile program. So we have wise teaching it in apartment complexes, partnering with the Salvation Army. And again, being intentional about finding communities who wouldn't have access, or maybe they don't have a YMCA or, you know, another kind of recreational pool in their community. Uh, good information. Uh, Brianna, we started this conversation and you talked about your family member's six-year-old, it was a six-year-old niece? Yes, ma'am. And what was her name? Her name was London, London, London. Adams. Yeah. When you are teaching little ones, how often are you thinking about London? Every time. I'm a mother of three and I make sure that my children, um, they know. I make sure that every child that I come in contact, I don't have to be in the water with them. If I see it, I make sure to correct it. I make sure the the loss, the pain that my family felt, if I can help one family avoid that, then I, you know, I've, I've done something right for her. Um, so every time I'm in the water, yes, I think of London. Every time I'm struggling, I'm, I need motivation. I think of her because she is the reason I'm able to sit on this call with you. She is the reason I'm able to work for the YMCA. She was the reason I have my purpose now. And I want to make sure that she, she didn't die for no reason. You know, she, she, and so absolutely, absolutely. Every time I'm in that water, I think of my baby. Yes. Brianna Scott Greenberg, YMCA of Metro Atlanta, the aquatics director. And then we're also speaking with Beckley Shipley, YMCA of Greater Metro. YMCA of Metro Atlanta Group Vice President. Great information. Thank you so much for both of you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. This is good information. And we'll have a link to 
your website and all the programs that you all have. And, and listen, is there a family out there that needs a little help? Well, as Becky said, they will don't let money be a barrier in terms of getting lessons for you know, your kids or even the, the entire family. We're all here to help. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Brianna. Thank you, Thank you so much, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel, who's also our engineer for today. Our summer intern is Lennox Johnson, proudly representing, what, Mount Holyoke College? You're, you're okay. Yes, yeah, a thumbs up. All right. Yay for Mount Holyoke. What's your mascot over there? What, what is it? A lion. A lion? Yeah. The Mount Holyoke Lions? Okay, all right. Uh, anyway, reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.